The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Have your Bible with you. I want you to take it out and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's Bibles in the pew racks there if you do not have one. If you don't own one, you can take that one home with you if you'd like. That one can be yours. We'd encourage you to read it. Last week we had our uh, Mission Sunday, and we do that every first Sunday of the year, and Pastor Roy was with us speaking about missions a little bit, and he was in Second Corinthians there, there some, but we are going to do a, a series throughout this month and focusing on missions, looking at Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 through 21. This is going to be our, our focus together for the next four weeks. Today we'll be pinning in on verses 11 through 15. When you look at uh, Corinthians and you look at Paul who wrote Corinthians, there are some things that become important for us to know to really try to grasp and understand uh, what is going on here. Uh, Recently, Pastor Spencer and I were were talking about how important history can be, how important uh, it becomes, especially when reading Scripture and in light of Scripture, because you begin to realize some things as you study history And it's that we just keep repeating ourselves, normally in bad ways, over and over again. And it's it's the same, it seems, spiritually as well. And when you look at the town of Corinth, I want you to think in a way of Las Vegas, okay? Because that is really what was going on in, in Corinth. It was a city of vice, and it was a city of individualism. But it also was a very exciting city. I mean, they had they had a theater there that would hold 3,000 people. Uh, They had a place for sports to take place that would hold upwards of 18,000 people where people would go and and watch the athletic events of a day. They they had uh, the Isminian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games that would happen there. So athletes wanted to be here in Corinth. And then within this city as well was a lot of religion, it was, it was a place where all gods were accepted, but all gods were not necessarily seen as equal. And so your status could be hindered or it could be helped based on the religion that you were or the God that you served. Because if you served a God that had a lot of people going to it and it was people with status within the town, then you were seen to be of high status. And so those gods would attract more people is how it kind of went. And then... Status, again, was very important within the city. You wanted to be seen as important. It was actually kind of seen as a city of opportunity because it was a place where slaves could go. It was a place where people without reputation could go and earn reputation. They could could earn status there, which wasn't that case everywhere in all the cities. And so Corinth was a place that people would flock to for these things. And so this is the place that Paul is writing the letter to, he is writing this letter to a, a small church in this city that he started. And he's writing it really for two reasons. One is he's writing it because he cares for the church that he started. He, he loves them. And what has happened is false prophets had entered into the church. They started to teach uh, things that were opposite of Paul. In fact, what, what these false prophets started to teach is they were teaching that outward expression was more important than inside change. That was what, that's what was being taught in this church. 
And so that's why you see the problems within this church. If you remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul would write to them about Lord's Supper. And he would tell them, you guys are observing Lord's Supper wrong because the rich come and eat early and they don't let the poor be a part of it. See, it started to become a status thing within the church, even Lord's Supper. And so Paul had to refute these things over and over again, saying, God doesn't love you more because you're wealthy and he loves you less because you don't have money. Or he loves you more because you're a very good athlete, but he loves you less because you can barely walk and not fall down. So Paul is having to to fight these things. But also Paul was having to prove once again that he was actually an apostle of Jesus Christ because these false prophets were coming in and what they were doing is they were saying, look, you cannot trust Paul because he constantly is suffering. Do you really think God approves his message? He's always hurting. He's always facing hardships. He's, he's facing these things over and over again. Do you think God really has his hand on him? You think he is an apostle? And so Paul was having to, if you want to say it this way, justify himself before the church that he had started again. And so where we find ourselves in chapter 5, I'll just back up a little and explain chapter 4 a little bit. In chapter 4, at the very beginning, Paul is saying, what I have, what we have as apostles, is we have to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. This is this is all that I've got. He says this in verse 1 through 6. And as you continue down in verses 7 through 18, he explains to the church saying, and what God has decided, this, this treasure that he had that, of Jesus and what Jesus has done, he has given it to, to jars of clay. He's given it to weak, weak people to go and to share this, this thing that has happened through Christ. And he would, you know, he's even speaking of himself in that way. And so here he's, he's speaking directly to the opponents. They're saying, if you're truly a messenger of God, you're untouchable. You're unbreakable, right? You're not going to have bad days. It, you always have victory. That, that is what they are teaching here to this church. And Paul's saying something very different because he would say in verses 16 through 18, he would say, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Right? And so Paul is fighting against this. He is saying, stop focusing on the outside stuff and focus more on the change that God provides through Christ what Paul is trying to deal with here. And so as we get to chapter 5, Paul comes off of this, and in verses 1 through 10, Paul starts to discuss with them heaven. He starts to discuss with them judgment. And there's a reason that this is on his mind for Paul. Judgment is on his mind because it is a motivation for him. The judgment of God motivates him. And so I want to look at that uh, real briefly in chapter 5, look at verses 6 through 10, because this enters us into what we'll be looking at. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
And then verse 10, he says something interesting. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, as I said, judgment was on Paul's mind. Now, I really think there's two, two ways to look at this passage. One, it can be looked at the judgment of the separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who've been saved by God's grace and those who have not. Now, there's another type of judgment that's talked about a few times throughout Scripture, and it's a judgment of those who have been saved by God's grace, of, of works that they have done. But we have to be careful when we talk about that judgment because that judgment does not touch our salvation. Uh, that judgment has nothing to do with our salvation. And so we, one of the problems that people will do is they'll read this verse in verse 10 and say, see, what I do matters to my salvation. It's going to matter if I get in or out of heaven based on what I do. And that goes completely contradictory to what Paul has said numerous times in other letters. And so that cannot be the case. And so what is being said here? Well, Paul is saying, obviously, that judgment in some way motivates him. Right? There is some motivation here in judgment. And so we'll, we'll talk about that here as we get into verses 11 uh, and 15. So let's, let's read that together. Actually, we'll go all the way to 21 just so we can see all that we'll be going through. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. <clears throat> for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you look at the very first part of verse 11, it says, therefore. So because of this judgment that Paul was speaking about, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So Paul is saying that this fear of the Lord causes us to persuade others. Now again, we've talked a ton recently about the word justification. And I'll be honest, I'd be a little angry if I came up to you and said, what's justification? And you looked at me like my kids do sometimes. I'd be frustrated because I'd say, we've pounded this in over and over again. I hope that you get it now. But justification is that God has paid our price. Has he not? He has paid the penalty of our sin himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And we are justified and we receive his righteousness so that my standing before God is not based on me and what I have done. It's on the finished work of Christ and what he has done. And so when I'm saved by God's grace, God doesn't see Tim's works. 
He sees the works of his son, then they're perfect. So I don't have to worry about that. So this is justification. And so then we have to ask ourselves, then what does Paul mean that this judgment causes him enough fear that it persuades him then to go and to do? Well, I think, again, I think it could be really twofold. One, I think it could mean he has a fear for those who have not been justified. He doesn't like to think of people dying separated from God. And so maybe this is the fear that causes him then to go and try to share with others the good news of Christ and what is there. And that's a fair motivation, I think. I think that should be a fair motivation of having a a real mindset of knowing that there are people within your family right now who, if they died, will not go to heaven to spend eternity with God. In fact, they will go to hell and be separated from God. Why? Because they have not been saved by his grace. They do not believe. They have no faith in Jesus at all. That should cause us to have some motivation to share with them the good news of Jesus, that they can know and that they can be assured because it is him who justifies. On the flip side of that, there could be another motivation that he has here. Because Paul would later say in another letter, he would talk about working out his own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, I think this is a verse that can get twisted, but uh, without going into too much detail about that verse, I believe it's speaking about us and our process of sanctification. After God has justified us, we then go and do. Something that's interesting about Paul when he writes, Paul never separates justification and those who've been justified from them acting as if they've been justified. That's never separated. And we can't separate that as well. And so if I've been saved by the grace of God and he's poured out the righteousness of Christ in me, then therefore, I'm going to act that way. And I'm going to obey him and I'm going to serve him and I'm going to love him and I'm going to follow the law that he has given me to the, to the best of my abilities. I'm not going to do that perfectly but I am going to work towards that. And so this could be the motivation that Paul is talking about as well. I want to serve my Lord well, right? I want to do these things well here. So now what we have is because of what God has done for Paul and how Paul knows God so intimately through justification, he's saying, I persuade others. This is what I do. See, this is what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus would say this. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so if we have been justified and saved by God and God has changed our hearts, then the overflow of that should be a service to him. It should be a a work to him. John Calvin would say of this verse that we're looking at, verse 11, this way, as my mouth speaks to men, so does my heart to God. That made sense to me. And so that, that's something that I have to judge for myself as I preach. As I preach to you and, and teach to you, is this the true feelings of my heart then to God? It needs to be. If not, then there's no truth in it. There's no effectiveness in what I'm, what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just a fake. Then it's just a phony. It needs to come from what God has done for me. And thus then I persuade others out of this fear of judgment like Paul is speaking about there. All right, the second part of verse 11 all the way to 14. 
Paul says something very interesting. He talks about the love of Jesus controlling our life and controlling our mission. It says compels us or constrains us. It talks about that there in verse 14. And I, I want to look at four different things as we, as we look at this, this section here. Uh, when it comes to our mission and the love of Jesus controlling our life and our mission. First, we're going to look at the character and the mission, our character and the mission. Second, we're going to look at the mission itself. Thirdly, our motivation in the mission. And fourth, our message in the mission. Okay? Because again, this is mission week. And so why we do what we do. Okay? Why we do what we do. And so as we do the mission of God, the missions that he has given us, one first thing we look at is our character. In Paul in verses 11 through 13, he talks about this character. I already mentioned the jars of clay. And there's just this thought, you drop it, it breaks. It's not very sturdy. It's not very stable. God uses those who are, are weak, right? It's more focused on the inside than the, than the outside. And again, Paul was being accused of being weak. He was being accused of because he's weak, therefore he is not of God. Sadly, this is still a common thought today. It's a very common thought today. Uh, you look at people, you see people's lives, and you judge, man, they must be living right. I've heard that phrase many times. They must be living right. Look at they got they got this going good. But for those who are down and out, they just must be bad people. That's what's going on. They're, they're just struggling. They're bad. Or even in a church setting. Many times the people who lead up and get up to lead, uh, they start to lead because they look the part. Because they look good. Or, or they sound good. And so that's who we want uh, to lead us. But as we see, that doesn't always work. That's not what always is what it should be. And we see that in Scripture because it's more important about our character and the person's character within the mission. Paul knew he was weak. And he actually used his weakness as a strength. He said, this, this proves actually some things for me. And so I'm going to read some other passages in, in the books of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. I've been mentioning this one. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Paul's saying, all these things have happened to me, but I, I am not destroyed. Why? Because the truth of God remains true in my heart. <clears throat> I'm persuaded of this. And we go through this little list here and you might feel this way, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. That's a good way to describe 2020. That's a good way to describe what many people feel today. And sadly, we see the effects of that. Many people are falling. Many people are failing. Many people are going to things that just are going to provide for them no hope whatsoever. And what Paul is saying, it's because, it's because what's on the outside doesn't matter a lick what only is sustained is the truth of what's on the inside of Christ and what he has done. And that's why Paul would say in this passage, that's why I'm not crushed. That's why I'm not destroyed. Right? We all face these things. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, he would say again, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God 
with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And later again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, well, this would have been before that, 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The way Paul is refuting these men who are saying it is power and status that prove God is working in your life, is he is saying, no, God uses the weak of the world to prove it is him that is working, not that man. I've said it many of times. I believe I am a good enough speaker that I could persuade many of you to come and pray at these steps after the service. I could get you to do it. I know I could. I could guilt you into it. I I could in some way make you think that if you came up here, it meant something special. I, I know that I could do that. I have that ability. But that's my ability. That's my ability. I could challenge you to... Say a prayer where you are at sitting in your seat. Again, that is my ability. But I do not have the power to change your heart. I don't. I can't. I can't do that. Only God can do that work. And so as we are on mission for God, one of the things that we have to admit and be willing to understand is that our character within this mission should be one of humility, understanding that God uses the weak of the world to do his work. And if I have been called to do his work, then I am weak. I don't necessarily have the shoulders to hold the weight of that work, but I trust him. And in fact, I'll be crushed. I mean, I'll be persecuted. I'll be caused to stumble. All these things will happen to me as I do the work of the Lord, and you too. But I know, again, that promise. I won't be crushed. I won't be destroyed because it's not about me. If you kill me, I just get to be home with the Lord. So be it. Thank you. It's kind of what Paul is getting at here in this statement. All right, so if this is our character within this mission, I think it's fair to ask, what is the mission? Look at verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for, their, for who their sake died and was raised. We ask this question then, what is the mission that God gives us? Well, it's pretty simple, honestly. We live for him. We live for him who died and was raised. When we're saved by his grace, Our lives are not ours anymore. They're his, and they're only his. That's why in Romans 12, it would say, we become a living sacrifice for him. That is what we do. This is our worship to God for what he has done through Jesus. We sacrifice everything for Christ in our life every single day. Now, this is where I would fall to say, that message doesn't fly in our society. It's not very appealing to tell Americans, give up every right you have for Jesus. 
Give it all up. Give it up for him. That that is the best thing you can do. That's just not good advertisement. (laughs) If I want to be powerful and mighty and have people listen to me, that's really not the message that one would say. But hopefully we understand as Christians, this is actually the only satisfying message that there is. This is the only one that can be believed and trusted and true. So when he saves us by our grace and we give ourselves completely to him, it is only then that we truly find any satisfaction whatsoever. We don't have to go far to see how our world doesn't live this way. We don't have to go far to see how so often we struggle to live this way. It's hard for us. It's hard for me to not live for Tim, but to live for somebody else. No matter if I am laying next to them in bed, trying to raise them as children, trying to serve them as pastor, or trying to honor them as Lord. It is very hard to take Tim off of the throne and put him aside. I'm sure you, I'm sure you feel that too in your own life. It's hard not to think about yourself. It's hard to put others first. It's hard to trust Christ with everything all the time. But that is the mission that Paul is saying here. He says, I live for him who died for me. Right? I give him everything. And so that is the mission of a Christian. Nothing more and nothing less. I think we get confused. We talk about this a lot as a, as a staff. We need to stay focused on the mission that God has given the church, right? He's given the church a mission. He's given us as individual Christians missions that we are to be doing, and we must stick with those things. And our first and foremost mission as a church and as individual Christians is to live for Christ daily, to be willing to give everything up for him who gave up everything for us. And so this is our mission. Well, then what is our motivation? Paul already talked about one, how the fear of the Lord persuades him. But then he goes on to say something very compelling in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us or the love of Christ compels us or constrains us, uh, your translation there might say. So when we ask the question, all right, if this is the mission, why should I do it? God's response would be, because I love you. Because I love you through Christ, you, you've seen this. And I, I want you to reflect on that just for a moment and where you're sitting. Reflect on the fact that Jesus' love is what compels us as Christians. Nothing else, nothing more than that. Sometimes in my life, I can be motivated by anger. I can be motivated by, revenge, uh, by vengeance. There's a lot of different things I can be motivated by. But what's supposed to motivate my heart as a Christian is the love of of Christ. And this is something we've been speaking about in very intensively, especially through the Christmas season. How could God, how could how could God creator send his son to die for enemies of him? Sinners, an enemy of the throne of God. Yet Jesus would die for you as you are an enemy of his. And Jesus would willingly and obediently do this. He would go to the cross to forgive sinners, rebels, But that's the love that he had. And that love that we have understood completely is what then controls us and compels us 
to serve him and to love him. When you look at that word there, control, constrain or or grips us, the love of Christ should as Christians grip us in a way that we can't help but do these things for him. We can't help but live for him on a daily basis in everything we say and everything we do. We want to honor him. I don't know if you've experienced this, this in your life, but have you ever just been compelled to do something for somebody? You might, I don't know, it could have been a complete stranger, but you saw them do something and you just felt compelled, I need to pay for their dinner. You just felt compelled to do it. Or you loved your wife or your husband so much, I just felt compelled, I just wanted to do this for you. Why did you buy me some flowers? I don't know, I just, I just felt like it. I just wanted to do it because I love you, I, I care about you. No, no inside motives, I promise. Just, I was compelled to do this. I, I'm sure you felt that way before with somebody This is the constraint and the compel that we, Christ grips our life with as Christians. I want to know you more. I I want to serve you. I want to glorify you in everything I say and in everything I do. But sadly, it seems as if this often fades in our life as Christians. But it's just like other relationships. Some of you who are sitting by your spouse and you've been married for 10, 15, 20, 30, 70 years, whatever it might be. Maybe for some of you, those compelling times have faded. You know, the last time you bought flowers, you don't know. You have no idea. It just fades sometimes, and it's, you can feel bad about it, and maybe maybe you should, but it just seems to be normal with us. That stuff just seems to go away. Sadly, that often happens with us in our relationship with God. But God has given us something to help that that doesn't fade. Do you know what that is? Do you know what God has given us to make sure that that love doesn't fade? You're in it now. Worship. Corporate worship. That's why he says, don't don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because as here we are reminded of the love that he has for us reading his word. Now, I don't take it very lightly that I tell you there's a Bible in front of you there and you can take it home. It can be yours and you can read it. And I tell you that so that you'll be reminded God loves you. He loves you. And it should compel you. It should constrain you. It should cause you to want to serve him and honor him. And I can promise you this. His love for you doesn't fade. It doesn't fade. He loves you intimately, savingly. And we love him back and we are controlled by this. So as we live our life, right, as we try to glorify God, we try to live for him, what then is our message? In this mission that God allows us to be a part of, what's our message? Well, Paul's already said it in verses 14 through 15. And this answers the question, what is the gospel? And to be honest, that's a very good question to ask today. Because there's a lot of churches, I think, that you could walk into and ask them, what is the gospel? And you're going to get different answers. And that's an important question to know the correct answer to. So what is the gospel? Well, Paul tells us in verse 14 through 15, we have concluded this. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You might say, well, what is our message in this mission? Our message is a very simple one, but it's a very profound one. Jesus Christ lived, he died, and he rose again. That's our message. That's what we proclaim. That's what we have to say to those who might say, what's different about you? Why do you go to church? I don't understand that. That's, that's what old people used to do. But we don't do that stuff anymore. Why do you continue to go? Because Jesus lived, Jesus died, and he rose again. That is the gospel message, and that is what Paul is saying here to this church, is we have Jesus Christ crucified. Now again, sadly, maybe even you in your life, you struggle with this, but we feel as if we need to package that message better to appeal to more people because we wonder how appealing that message really is. We say, God, here's my, my character in the mission. I'm weak. I want to be on mission. My motivation is your love compels, but I do have one problem. The message you want me to tell to people, they're not flocking to it. They don't love that I'm saying a guy 2,000 years ago lived, died, and rose again. And so what we often see is we see people try to pretty this up. We try to pretty it up with prestige, with trinkets. We try to make it look fun, exciting. We try to package along with Jesus maybe some prosperity. Maybe along with Jesus we push in some happiness. We do these different things to try to get people to be interested in the message but the problem is that's not our message. The only message we have as Christians, as people saved by God's grace, is the gospel that we just talked about, Jesus. And that is the power that we have as individual Christians and as a church. It's kind of interesting. I've said this, I think, before. I don't mean to anger anybody, but... It seems as if the strategy in the 50s and 60s of the church was to gain power politically. And then you can have more of an influence on society and maybe see them come to know Christ. And I feel like we kind of got off balance there. We stopped trusting in the power of the message and the gospel and the means that God has given us to share that message. Pulpits, individual Christians living their lives faithfully, being faithful Christians like they should be, and when the opportunity comes, tell your neighbor about Jesus. And we said, no, we'll do it through the Congress. We'll do it through the Senate. We'll do it if we get Christian presidents. Then our nation will become Christian again. Well, I think we understand that. That didn't work. That doesn't work. Why? Paul's telling us that is not powerful enough to change a heart. The only thing that can change a heart is the message the gospel gives us. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. You are a sinner. And unless by faith you believe that he died for you on that cross to forgive you of your sins, if you don't believe in that, 
then you don't have him. You're not forgiven. But if you do believe in that, the power of God saves you by his grace and you will be justified and you will be satisfied. You will, in my opinion, if you're living the Christian life appropriately, you will be joyful. You will understand peace and you will one day spend eternity with him forever. Church, that's the only message we have. That's it. Nothing else. We can speak to some other society ills, and I urge you to do that as individual Christians. You won't hear that much from the pulpit, from me. That's not the job of the church. The job of the church is to share the gospel, the message that we're talking about here. Again, to most people, this is not pretty. To most people in our world that you go and talk to, it's not going to be a special thing for them to hear. They're not going to say, well, thank you, kind sir. I want Jesus. It's just not going to happen. To most people, it's not even going to be logical. It's not going to make any sense to them. They're not going to comprehend for a second what it means that somebody could die in my place for me to make me right with God. It just, it just doesn't match up. But Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 1.18 as he is starting his letters to the Corinthians. He answers this. He knows this is coming because he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the gospel message that we have. It is the power that we have. If people want to say the gospel message that MNBC is sharing is ridiculous, so be it. Those people are so dumb for thinking that Jesus came for sinners. They're so dumb for thinking that I'm a sinner. Well, who, they don't know me. They, that is ridiculous. Listen, that is okay. Because to those who do not believe, it's, it's folly. That's supposed to be the response from probably many people. But we also know that God uses this message to change lives. And we know this to be true because many of you are sitting here today and God changed your life through that simple message. You're a sinner and Jesus died for you. Do you by faith believe? And God changed your heart to say, yes, I do. And so we know that God still does that today. And that is why we proclaim the gospel. That is why we do our best to live out the law that God has given us and, and saved us from. We do our best to live that way at work, at home, at these things, so that we can be faithful to him and to glorify him and that if he gives us opportunity to share this good message, we will not pervert the message. But we'll say this is the message. Jesus died and rose for you. Do you believe? And when somebody actually says, yes, we know, wow, that was a work of God because I'm pretty dumb. I'm a, I'm a clay jar with a lot of cracks in it. I mean, a lot of stuff leaks out. And God just allowed me to be used to see this happen. What an amazing story. What amazing thing that I can be a part of. 
This is the mission that we're talking about for the rest of the month. Glorifying God in everything we do, everything we say. At the end of verse 15, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I think that's the question that we have to ask as individual Christians. Are you living for him who for your sake died? Is that your goal in life? And now we'll get to this stuff. And if you'll listen actually to the video we made on Wednesday, this is helpful. Listen, that doesn't mean you've got to go to Africa and serve. It doesn't mean that you've got to enter the foster care and foster 7,000 kids. It doesn't mean any, it doesn't mean you've got to come up here and preach. I'm not saying that. All it's saying is you live your life faithfully to him. If you work at a store, work well at the store. Honor your boss. Be kind to people. Love your neighbors. Do these things that God has called you to do where you are at and do it to glorify him every second of your life. And you will honor this mission that God has given you. And God will work through it. And so I guess that's where we leave this morning. Are we doing that? Are we living our life, not to ourselves, but to him every day, being faithful Christian soldiers, as the, as the song would say, every day serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and honoring him? I hope you are. I hope you're striving for that. I'm gonna ask you, would let's bow together, let's pray. We're gonna sing a song to close. As we mentioned, we sing this song for two reasons. One, to end in, in a song to God. We, we like doing that. But two, it's to give you an opportunity to reflect on what you've heard through God's word and to respond to God's word where you sit, to be able to contemplate it and to think and to pray. And so I hope that you'll use this time for that. I, I trust that God's word will speak to you. God, we thank you for the truths of your word. God, help us to be living for you every day to glorify you be honoring you with everything we say and everything that we we do. God, the the gospel message is is a message that is very simple. It's something you've done for us. I I can't adequately live out that gospel message because I can't save anybody. I can't do it. Jesus did that. Jesus lived out the gospel message perfectly. And so it's not my my job to do that. He has done that. God, it's my job now to worship him, to praise him, to tell others about him and what he has done. And so, God, I ask that you would help me to do that as an individual. God, as a pastor here at MNBC, help us as a church to do that faithfully in everything. God, for each individual here this morning, I, I pray that they would be living that out in their life, not carrying around the weight and the burden of the mission. That's not my way to carry. That's not their way to carry. Jesus did that and he accomplished it. It's over. God, to serve you because your love compels us and it becomes a joy to serve you and to honor you and to, to do the things that you've given us. I know, I know for me, God, you, you've allowed me to have a wife and I get to love her well. You've allowed me to have children and I get to serve them well. God, Help me to do that, not to minimize those things, but to lift them up and to see them for how you would, to be faithful in there. Places that we work, to serve you there. That doesn't mean 
forcing everybody to pray or something like, no, that just to be a faithful Christian where we are and to glorify you in everything we say and everything we do. God, I, I trust that if we do that, if we continue to look to you and honor you, to live our life for the one who died for us. God, I do believe that you'll continue to work in our lives. You made that promise. Help us to see the fruits of the Spirit become more evident in us as individuals. Help us to see neighbors and loved ones come to know you as their Lord and Savior. God, help us to be faithful to this mission. Help us to be faithful to continue to share the message that you've given us. God, as we sing this song, help us to praise you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.